Welcome to episode 4 of the DNA Papers, the podcast series in which we discuss the foundational papers in the history of our understanding of the role that DNA plays in life. Thus far in the series, we've looked at discoveries in the fields of physiological chemistry in the late 19th century, which brought the previously unknown molecule to our attention, and an early milestone in classical genetics at the dawn of the 20th century, which was an important prerequisite for making the link between this new substance and the process of heredity. In today's episode, we highlight contributions from yet another unexpected set of disciplines, microbiology and epidemiology, in the DNA story. We visit a laboratory in London, where in the course of an epidemiological investigation of pneumonia infections caused by bacteria known as pneumococci, the bacteriologist Fred Griffith stumbled upon a phenomenon that he dubbed transformation. Now, as has been the case with previous papers in the series so far, neither the title, which is The Significance of Pneumococcal Types, nor the journal where it was published, the Journal of Hygiene, as it was known then, gives very much away. Certainly, neither of them offer any clues about the profound impact that Griffith's discovery would have for the entire landscape of biology, and molecular biology in particular, during the later part of the 20th century. Here to help us understand the significance, not just of pneumococcal types, but also more broadly of the phenomenon of transformation in the history of DNA, is an impressive lineup of guest speakers whom I'll waste no more time in introducing. First up is Lloyd Ackert, a teaching professor of history at Drexel University in Philadelphia. The author of a scientific biography of the Russian soil microbiologist, Sergei Vinogradsky, Lloyd represents the generalist historian of microbiology, a perspective I felt was important to include in this episode of the series because the history of DNA is deeply rooted in the field of microbiology, something we tend to lose sight of in conversations which are quickly dominated by molecular biology and molecular genetics. Here today in a slightly different role than the last episode is Matthew Cobb, who will be shortly taking over from me as the moderator of today's session. Matthew is eminently suited to don this mantle for multiple reasons. Besides being a scientist and a writer of both scientific and science history books, he is also the translator from French to English of the histories of molecular biology by our next guest speaker, Michel Morange, who probably needs little or no introduction to historians of modern biology. Not least because of his landmark book, A History of Molecular Biology, and its new, updated, and expanded avatar, The Black Box of Biology. Michel wears multiple scholarly hats as biologist, historian, and philosopher with equal facility, and I'm thrilled that he's joining us in the series today. I'll now turn the session over to Matthew. Okay, so this paper from 1928 is 47 pages long, which is a bit longer than we generally read these days, and indeed it's by far the longest paper uh, that we're going to be discussing in this series. 
So I'm going to ask everybody to try and condense it, both for us, but also for the listeners, to have a, a kind of one-minute summary, what the movie industry calls an elevator pitch, where you got to describe very rapidly what's really exciting about something. What is the main content of this paper? So I'm going to start with Lloyd. Come on, Lloyd, you've got one minute. Right. Yes, the person who probably knows the least about the history of DNA. But I do have some, uh, I can bring something to this conversation. I really see that it's a bacteriological study about the pneumococcus. And Griffith sets up a number of series of tests looking at both the shape and structure of the pneumococcus cells in relation to a series of other tests that he conducts in mice, which are about virulence, about infection, and about the changing aspects of those categories through a series of four or five different tests. That's enough to get going, and we'll have more as we go on. Okay. Michelle, what's, what's your one-minute summary of this? From the beginning, Griffiths has one hypothesis. Pneumococcus is able to transform, and so eventually, to different types. He has this hypothesis in mind. But if you look at the paper, the road is long and tortuous because, okay, the first part is devoted to the R state and complex state, intermediate state. And after he looks at the transformation from the R state to the same virulent move state, and then in a limited number of pages, is presents a result showing that it's possible in this condition to transform one S R state coming from one S state to another S state. But it's a limited part of the paper. Yeah, yes indeed. This is a for for, for those of us who, who read this paper who come across Driffith's work because of Avery's because of what Avery saw in this and what he was eventually able to extract from it and show that what he called the transforming principle was made of DNA. This is a paper is a bit of a surprise. <laughs> I mean, and few, it's hard going, as I wrote in my notes, uh, hard going. And what's striking, given what we now think about this, is how little urgency there is. And he just describes in the in the opening paragraph that these were studies that he carried out between January 22 and March 27. So he's just kind of done it when he's got other things on. It's not like it's the absolute focus of what he's trying to do because he's got other things that are important. And it's kind of something he's he's just kind of drifted into. And as he says uh, at one point, I record the foregoing observations without attempting at present to interpret them. We've just waded through three pages of sometimes incomprehensible bacteriology. And he says, well, there you go. That's just the way it is. So he's not, you know, this is not the paper of a man who thinks he has discovered the basis of heredity. I think that's that's very clear. He's discovered something very intriguing and he's trying to explain it to his audience who are primarily other public health workers and bacteriologists. So for us, Reading this nearly a century later, and a century after he did some of the experiments, it, it it's a it's a bit of a hard read to try and extricate that essential quality. What for us is important, but clearly was not for him. That's the essential point. And 
One of the difficulties that I've found both as a, a reader now, but also when I've tried to summarize this for the general public, is the difference between the types and the groups. You've got type one, you've got type three, you've got group four, which are all different kinds of bacteria, and then you've got R and S and virulent and non-virulent, which all kind of overlap. And I wonder whether any of, <laughs> any of you could help me with trying to understand which of the we now think are the important bits and what Griffith himself thought were the most significant parts of this. Yes, I think the study on R is, I don't know whether it is important, but I think it's quite original. And in particular, maybe because for Griffith, it's a general phenomenon among different classes of microorganisms. So for Griffith, this kind of transition, S to R to S, is something that can be general and participate in general to the transformation and to the evolution of virulence between microbes. I must add maybe something that I had in mind is exactly the scheme that Griffith thinks about, is a scheme that Pasteur had in mind when he considered the possibility for microbes to become attenuated and then for the attenuated microbes to be activated again and to become again virulent. If you think it's very, very similar to what says uh, Griffith, I think it's not so surprising. Probably the models of Pasteur were very influential still in these years. It's very striking that as part of the literature which he explores here, it's not all about pneumococcus. We've also got anthrax, other examples of transformation that were noticed at around about the same time, presumably as a consequence of the expansion of bacteriology and the wave of disease that took place during and after First World War in the trenches and so on. And it's quite enticing in that respect because I know historians aren't supposed to do what-if experiments in thought experiments. You know, what if Avery and Avery had been knocked over by a bus in 1934? We wouldn't have discovered the basis of transformation in pneumococcus. But it's clear that there were plenty of other examples that might in microbes that might eventually have been picked up by other scientists trying to understand how this works. If I might, uh, Lloyd here add something. This goes a little bit to the broader context, but I was thinking, of course, uh, also of the impact of Louis Pasteur's work on this study, but also, as you say, of the uh, more, say, German school. But there are many other aspects of this that I think we could draw out in that the language of transformation goes back to a dispute, a debate between people who were called the monomorphists and the pleomorphists, right? The monomorphist people believed that bacteria had a single type and that they could be categorized in a way that botanists would do it, right? And that they would have a specific species and genera and all that kind of a structure. But there were many other people like Carl von Nagli who believed that these were actually one kind of microbes that would transform one into the other depending on the 
context in which they live, in the environment in which they live. And so I think that it was really surprising to me that while I see Griffiths trying to find, perhaps at least hinting at a material cause for these kinds of transformations between virulent and non-virulent, rough and smooth, and, and, right, and all that, and back, um, that he's still caught in a language of this kind of environmental context, right? If you look at the microbiologists in comparison to bacteriologists, they are much more willing to accept that there are species here, they live in their environment, that they go into submission or into their, their dormant state until they're needed again, right, in the environment. But I'm talking about the 1880s and 90s, early 20th century, with almost no regard for Charles Darwin's ideas of evolution, right? And, and here's Griffiths, like many other bacteriologists, who are saying, okay, we can use these things. We have to study them because of epidemics, of health, also for their, right, these kind of basic scientific theories that he has about uh, transformation and generation and all these terms he uses. And yet, Right. It, it really not in an evolutionary context, because almost nobody is doing that now. And so I think if we start to broaden the perspective of where Griffiths fits in as this you know, person in the Ministry of Health in the bacteriological laboratory is uh, is very interesting. That institutional setting, I think, is driving a lot of his language, especially when he talks about epidemics. So so I think that's just one. This idea of what is the nature of bacteria? is not resolved here. And he's not trying to do that. But he's caught up in this vague language. Uh, and it's, it's like, so I see it as an intermediary paper, looking ahead a little bit from his point, but then also behind. But he doesn't need to solve the issue immediately. Can you explain more, Michel? He can keep this issue open, I think. There is a transformation. This transformation can be initiated by the environment, it can be transmitted. Somehow it's sufficient for the reasoning. It's not necessary to to have another vision to speak about genetic mutation or so. No, no, we are not in this kind of discussions. Yeah, it, it's clear that he's he's driven to the conclusion that he is seeing genuine transformation of type, whatever that is almost against his will, against what he's expecting. He says on page 154 that you know, there seems to be no alternative to the hypothesis of transformation of type. And a few years ago, this statement would have been received with great skepticism. And it's the data that's pushed him to that. And he's not, it's not like he's trying to you know, support a hypothesis that he, he's really excited about and he thinks is going to be, ha, huh, transformational, but rather the data are pushing. They've got him into a corner and he can't escape from them. And he's saying to his readers who share his doubts and language and concepts, look, we, there is something new here. We've got no alternative but to accept this. And implicitly, although he doesn't really say this, to try and work out what the underlying chemical mechanism might be. So I have a question, uh, which is chemical mechanism, yes, but this still isn't being considered as a problem of heredity or genetics, right? It is very much a problem of, at most, variation, whatever that were, bacterial variation, the context under which he is considering this new phenomenon. Would that be a correct interpretation? 
for me, yes, absolutely. Lloyd here, um, if I could add, if you remember back to Gerald Giesen's work about Pasteur, even when Pasteur is developing his anthrax vaccine, he is still trying to figure out what explanation to use, whether it's a, a chemical like in the course story about what's happening in the body or if it's a biological one. And he, he goes back and forth there. And, and I think maybe that's, you know, again, that's a long time before this, but maybe some of that idea is still caught up in these, uh, for these bacteriologists working on immunity. And also another reference to build on Michelle's about uh, Pasteur is just this idea of passing these, these microbes through bodies and different kinds of bodies, right? And in case it's mostly mice in this case, and quite a lot of mice, I should add, but it's also the human beings, right? So he's looking at, right, he's looking at virulence and, in, and strength of, of these in a body, a human body, and then also taking them to the mice. I, so I, I just, I also just, I'm really fascinated by that. It's interesting that uh, the example of anthrax is the first one mentioned by Griffiths out of Pneumococcus, and it was the first case studied by Pasteur. So it's quite interesting, <laughs> I think. Yeah, the, the anthrax example, uh, which is from 1917, by the work of, I don't know how to say his name, by Bale, I or her name. I, I know their first initial is O. I tried to find out a bit more about them, but I... I, I... Oh, that's Oscar Bale, German. He did a lot of bacteriophage work. Okay, so the, the description that Griffiths gives of Bale's work from 1917, he says there that, the, that Bale ascribes the effect he's seen in anthrax to a deficient inheritance of the capsule-forming substance. And Bale seems to be more interested in the mechanism than, in a way, Griffith is caught up in this incredibly baroque system of classification and different passages of his bacteria through different organisms and the role of food and all sorts of multiple factors that he's trying to explore in a, in a rather haphazard way. You, he'll forgive me, 100 years on, uh, you know, because he's been doing this, as we said, as a public health clinician, and he's got other things to do apart from trying to work out exactly what's happening in this transformation. And he's carried this out over five years, and he's desperately trying to hone down what's going on. But he hasn't been able to do it in a way that I think a modern student would do. And he's doing it in a much more confused, well, what appears to be a confused way. He's groping towards first understanding what the problem is, and then secondly, trying to see how he might investigate it further. I wonder whether we could speak a bit more about this, why we think it's so important, this paper, because it's been kind of assumed in terms of what's going to come afterwards. But given this is a, an epidemiological paper and we've emphasized his role as a public health researcher, why exactly is this central to the study of DNA? Why did it end up having such a, a pivotal role, even if, as we've seen from our own experiences, uh, it's not actually read these days, or if it's read, it's probably not fully understood because it is so dense. Michel, could you say something about its role? Yes, I am not sure that it's exactly... A paper in epidemiology, but we can come back later on this point. But it's important because 
if Griffiths is right, uh, it means that the tools that are existing at that time to fight against this type of disease, serotherapy, is uh, in fact raise a lot of issues because uh, if you add a serum, you in this case you convert to R form, then it is converted back to S form, but maybe another S form, and so the disease can start again. So what discovers Griffiths, I think, is a real serious issue uh, for serotherapy. And it will be the same for the vaccines. Vaccines are not yet uh, on the market at the time, but there are uh, many people think about the possibility of having vaccines against pneumococcus. But it will be the same. This kind of transformation is a drama for uh, for doctors. I have a quick interjection because isn't it the possibility of vaccines? that brings in the future Avery into the picture also. I mean, he's interested in pneumococcus precisely for developing vaccines against pneumonia. Isn't that true? Or that's one of the reasons that Griffiths catches his attention. But it is often said that precisely because the project of a vaccine was more or less abandoned by Avery, that finally he had time to work on the transforming principle. Maybe it's an, an exaggeration, but it, it has been often said. In addition, you know, there was a, the appearance of sulfamides and later antibiotics. And in this case, vaccines were less an urgency. There were new tools to fight against microbes. So I think the context was different. And maybe this new context explains in some sense that Avery focused his attention to the phenomenon. That is later, though, but what immediately caught his attention for Griffith's work, that's what I meant. Uh, I mean, he was immediately interested in Griffith's work. I'll read Avery's story to others who know it better. So in 1922 to 1927, and then the publication in 1928, is a very interesting period because if you accept that, as I do, and I, what I see in Griffith is that he's really trying to identify, or it, maybe not explicitly, but he gets the sense that there's a material, physical property that's occurring inside these cells, these single cells, that is changing from generation to generation, depending on the kind of contact heat or different bodies or other things. And he's trying to get a sense. But to me, what's essential here is this notion of a material aspect of these changes. But then what raises my question here, a question for me is, well, what's happening in all the other laboratories that are studying these things like Morgan's, Thomas Hunt Morgan's lab and Dobzhansky, who at the same time are looking at larger bodies, but looking at material, trying to identify the material aspects of these and Barbara McClintock and Randolph's lab, who are looking at like actual chromosomes, you know, and then, and then talking about genes. And now this is the very early stages of that. But I mean, so here's a bacteriologist in his laboratory in England who is sort of like, you know, isn't it, doesn't it like why, what about all the other work that's happening about the material aspects of these kinds of studies? Or am I getting something wrong here? 
Well, I, I think you're perhaps getting ahead of things <laughs> in that at the time, Morgan, for example, and, and others were, were indeed interested as in, they weren't just interested in genes as abstract concepts or as something that was changing a bristle on a, on a fly or whatever, but they weren't sure that there was a single material thing. And, and this is one of the arguments that, that uh, Morgan put forward, was that perhaps the gene was the amount of something. It wasn't a, a qualitative thing, and you know, a particular chemical, but it was the amount of some set of chemicals, which would, and this is partly Morgan's ideas going back to his developmental biological origins, where you would think, as we would now put it in terms of morphological gradients or something, perhaps that is the same thing as the gene. Perhaps it's ex absolutely identical. And then after this, of course, we had Wendell Stanley apparently demonstrating that at least in a virus, the genetic material is a protein. And what are chromosomes made of? Well, the mainly they're made of protein. I, I think the interest of this and why it caught Avery's attention is precisely, as you mentioned, because of serotyping. And that was what Avery's big deal was. And that's why he was one of the reasons why he was proposed for the Nobel Prize so often in the, in the 1920s and 1930s, because he'd established ways of uh, being able to, at the very least, identify what was infecting people. That didn't necessarily help you with a cure, but it was a, you know, a, a typology. And as you've explained, Lloyd, now we've got this, it, it seems they can change. So I guess Avery must have been a bit challenged and concerned about this because, you know, as, as a clinical tool, serotyping now seems to be less precise because the thing it's trying to measure is changing or can change under certain circumstances. And it's not just we've got lots of different types we've got to identify, but now things can actually change. And clearly, if that's from an avirulent to a virulent form, then that's very worrying. And from a, an epidemiological point of view, that would also be concerned. Naraja. Yeah. So one other thing, I think when we're talking at that time, one also has to remember that bacteria weren't really considered to even be able to have genes because they were asexual. And genes were the province of sexually reproducing organisms. And so, you know, I think... I hate to use the word premature, but I'm wondering whether, you know, to think of, especially in Griffith's time, when he is thinking of this as a purely problem of variation and something is actually changing. So while the material aspect is definitely there, it's not the material aspect of genes that's in his head. It's what is the material aspect of what it is that's changing. And that's where Avery comes in because his interest is in capsules and he's looking for the capsule. But again, I might be jumping ahead. Well, I, I wonder whether we could just briefly think if Avery hadn't picked up on this, what would we be saying about it? Would we be including this paper? Would we be saying, here's a, a, a lost pathway, as, for example, we might do with the work of Oscar Oscar Bale and, and anthrax, that's a that's a, a route that was not taken, which could technically have led to the discovery of the genetic material and bacteria at least. Is is there more here for a history of DNA and heredity, or would it be primarily seen as an oddity or a, a, an interesting piece of bacteriology? We must not forget also that. Griffith, in his article, very briefly 
says that he tried to repeat the experiment uh, in vitro and it didn't work. And for him, apparently, it was a closed door. He apparently does not imagine that it will be possible to obtain this transformation. So I think we must not forget that, because I think he had the feeling that there was an obstacle that could not be overcome. It was not true, because very rapidly, in two or three years, Sia and Dawson and Holloway will show that it's possible to do it not only in vitro, but also with extracts. Nevertheless, for him, at the beginning, there was a kind of, okay, obstacles that cannot be overcome. In addition, I think there were other models, we have not talked about them, but models of biochemicals, models susceptible to explain what happened, kind of models support suggesting that you had some sugars playing a role uh, in the beginning of growth of the capsule. So uh, complex, not known, but nevertheless, something that seemed reasonable. And in this case, you did not need the genes at all. It was a, it was a biochemical phenomenon, nothing else. I mean, we must not forget also this other possibility. Lloyd? Yeah, yes, I agree, Michelle, especially very important to point out the in vitro experiments that he tried in this experimental series. And I think that if you can say, okay, what if, right, we, this wouldn't go to a down a different path or have really just kind of lay flat and not have it disappear from history, but Neeraja captured it. So now we have it and we can deal with it. I think that it's, it does represent a really important moment in that it's a, the laboratory sciences are really starting to try to engage with the problem in pelvic health and with epidemics. And this is, he's starting his work not very long after the 1918 pandemic, right? Flu pandemic, but in influenza is very much a part of that. And so to look at the pneumococcus and try to do something from the laboratory sciences aspect is really crucial here. And I think it's because it's showing that the importance of these institutions really for the first time in trying to do something for the public, for society in regards to these very dangerous epidemics, they know we're going to come back. And I see that a lot of the language, not just in his conclusion discussion, but in throughout, it's really trying to worry about that. And I, and I think that's what's driving it. And then the added bonus is that he actually has very confusing, but yet, so, so there's a lot there. He shares his laboratory work with the open public in a way I don't think we see very often. And here's my mistakes, and here's my successes, perhaps, um, and here's where I'm going to go forward. So I, I really, I, I see this as representative of a, of a group of scientists who are in the laboratory trying to deal with a very tricky, very important scientific issue, medical issue. I just want to back up for the sake of our general audience, because we use words, scientists especially, but even historians of science are in the know, use words like in vitro very easily. So when you say in vitro, what is, when he was unsuccessful in vitro, could you explain that just very briefly for our broader listening public? Yes, Michelle. In vitro. Well, the experiment of Griffiths were done in the animal. In vitro means that you can take pneumococcus, pneumococci, 
and you can add to them dead pneumococci of another strain and obtain so far. So the transformation uh, in vitro, meaning you have no organism. It's not within an organism. It's uh, only between uh, dead pneumococcus and living pneumococcus. And after the next step will be the dead pneumococcus to break it and to extract something in the dead pneumococcus that can do the same as the dead pneumococcus. And the road will be open to, to purification of this X substance. Right, Lloyd. Just to add a little bit to that, if you're in the Petri dish, right, that kind of artificial environment, and you're trying to do that in vitro experiment, it reflects a great divide in the kind of foundational period of, of microbiology and bacteriology. People like Vinogradsky, who would become a, you know, the founder of soil microbiology and, and an ecologically minded uh, microbiologist, he really pushed against people like uh, Robert Koch, who were like trying to, you know, do that bacteriological work, identify, test, identify to make sure you can identify a single kind of uh, microbe with a disease, right? And and Vinogradsky and people like him, uh, Bayerink, Martianus Bayerink from the Delft School, they really were like, we just need to like work with the natural environment and we can get the truth of what these microbes are. And so like you see a diversification of a distinguishing of these different fields and disciplines of, of the microbial world, right? Microbiology, soil microbiology, water microbiology, and bacteriology and all of its different components or divisions. So I think part that's what we see here. And so, but to try to the in vitro really puts him in that camp of, I think, that Kochian model. And that's a little bit too strong perhaps for history because by the 1920s, it's much more complicated. If I could just add one more thing related to that, Berge had started publishing his manual of, of bacteriology. It has a couple of different names, but 1923. And if you look at that, it's all the microbes are categorized basically by physiology and morphology. That is what they eat and produce and what they look like, right? Their structure. And so here we have a person who is really trying to do something quite different and see how they, they, hurt, they work in, in almost like, um, uh, you know, I almost think of it like a linkage study in genetics, right? It's kind of a complex Pasteurian but modern version of Pasteur's trials. So I think it's it's just I think he is important here in a lot of different ways. And that someone 10 years later looked back and said, oh, I see something really important here. That's kind of cool, too. Yeah. And I, I think the the in vitro aspect is which he couldn't master, but was able to be mastered and clearly with great success by Avery is absolutely fundamental because trying to isolate the transforming principle from a mouse was going to be pretty hard. I mean, he could do the experiments by, you know, injecting it all into the mouse and seeing whether it died or not. But going any further without being able to keep it in a Petri dish was going to be a dead end. It would be impossible uh, because you'd have all the problems that in fact ended up besetting the studies of multicellular organisms. I mean, one of them, I think one of the most mind-boggling facts is that it was only in 1977, I think, that 
DNA was proved to be the genetic material in multicellular organisms when they transformed Drosophila. And when I was a first year student, I remember reading a, a textbook, uh, this is 1974, five, something like that, a textbook about how protein synthesis and genes work. And there's a little asterisk. And I look down at the bottom of the page and it says, this has been shown only in bacteria and viruses. And I felt the ground falling away from under my feet. I mean, I, I thought, so you mean it might not be true? And of course it was accepted, but it, it hadn't actually been demonstrated in, in vivo I transforming one organism into another like you could do with, with bacteria in multicellular organisms because it was extremely complicated. So in a way, if it hadn't been Griffith's work that inspired Avery, it would have been either work on phage or some other virus which would have inspired people, or it would have been work on anthrax or, or some other microbe, if only because there's the biochemical problems were of such immensity that it would have been impossible to find a solution in any other way. I don't know whether that's too speculative, Lloyd. Just when I worked in a human aging laboratory, the Kurtzinger Group at the University of Minnesota in the early 90s, and we had PCR, it was still really frustrating to find anything out about these you know, the, the genes and chromosomes and all, you know, all that. And so anyway, I agree. It's just, so if you jump away 70 years, you have uh, still a lot of trouble to, to do this kind of work. Yeah, I won't ask you to decode PCR for our people know the acronym. Very few people know what it is, but I think that's a conversation for a separate podcast. I wanted to ask a question of, uh, well, Matthew touched on it already about himself, but I wanted to bring this back and ask Michelle and Lloyd this question. When did you first encounter Griffith's work? When did you first learn about his work? And when did you actually read his paper? Is there a great divide in those two things in your own career? Because all of you mentioned the fact that Griffith's paper is not an easy read. It's a real slog. So whoever would like to go first. I can you know, as I was a very serious student, so I believed what masters said. So when I read in the books of molecular biology that the Griffiths discovered the phenomenon of transformation that late, uh, it was purified by Aloe and others, and uh, okay, I believed that. And I did not raise any other issue and I, of course, I did not read the article of Griffiths, uh, more than 40 pages. Okay, so it was very difficult. I came to this article only recently, thanks to Niraja, and by, during preparing this, this uh, discussion, and uh, I was surprised by the content of this article. But the discoveries were somehow mundane. Okay, an important discovery, the transforming phenomenon in pneumococcus, the experiment can be reproduced in vitro and so on and so on. If I may, one more question, just the gap between when you said you read the paper and when you were first a student, was that in the 70s? Yes, during my studies in the course of molecular biology, you know, it was uh, one of the first courses, the phenomenon of transformation 
discovery of DNA and so on, so on. So it was a milestone in this in this way. Well, from my point of view, Michel, the only reason I knew about it was because I believed you when I was translating your history of molecular biology, and you believed your teachers. I didn't go and read it. I I, I read bits of it in about 2014 when I was writing my book, but I didn't read the whole thing until I was preparing for this. And I'm not sure I'd recommend it to anybody but the most determined student of DNA or the history of microbiology, because it, it is hard going. Yeah. Lloyd, what about you? Yeah, so I have to thank Nirija and all of you for asking me to read this essay over the last month here or two. And But I have read many other reports that were very similar in the style of reporting and in the, the results uh, as opaque as this one is. But also, right, I think it takes a good historical analysis like has been done or is being done of works like this to try to point out and, and to follow that trajectory between Griffiths, Avery, and others later. So there's something, again, valuable here. But I do recall reading many, many as a, you know, as a history, historian of microbiology from a, of a different part of it, right? Russian, Soviet, and other European experimenters, researchers in this field really took me away from the literature of the bacteriologists working on this, which I regret now because I think there's a lot to do there. And so then when I studied the history of genetics, you know, Dubzhansky especially, and started to see his, the way he approached those studies with those gigantic organisms of the fruit fly, Griffiths seemed is really peripheral to those discussions. So, uh, but I think I'll bet if you go back to Dubjansky, he probably cited right. He probably had something in there in his genetics and the origin of species. No, okay, he's not in there. Okay, Dubjansky and others just did not think of bacteria in those terms. That was the thing. Um, I think just just to point that out for the for the for the people who are the audience here that there are other ways to think about how a pneumococcus is an important model organism for these different kinds of medical research and genetic research. It's perhaps worth saying something a bit about uh, Griffith himself and his fate and his his family connections, because he he does have a a connection to the DNA story. So uh, Griffith himself, uh, he died in a bombing raid, died during the Blitz of London. He was killed in a German bombing raid. But his nephew, John Griffith was one of the people who, in 1952, Crick and Watson consulted as they were thinking about trying to uncover the structure of DNA, although they weren't entirely convinced it was the genetic material. And Griffith was involved in working out the uh, possible uh, binding of the basis. Now, what's fascinating is that Griffith himself, John Griffith, he was a PhD student at the time, he did not know about his uncle's role in any of this. He had no idea at the time. He only discovered it much, much later. So there was no kind of family tradition of, oh, you know, Uncle Fred <laughs> laid the basis for Avery's work. It was, it was completely unknown to him. Uh, and indeed, well, I'm not surprised that Crick didn't know, but Watson doesn't seem to have known that, that either. And the other piece of information that was a family story, whether it's true or not, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, whether it's relevant is kind of unclear, but it, there is at least there were stories in the 50s and 60s that Griffith, John uh, Fred Griffith, was homosexual, and you can see in some references to 
well, he was a, a fam. He was a single man. He didn't have a family, uh, and that's one kind. You know, it's one way of people trying to present his sexuality in a way that uh, was acceptable at the time. Thank you for adding that insight into his life, though, Matthew. Important, I think, to set it in context. Is there anything else anybody else wants to add back, bringing Griffith back to DNA? No, I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me to be part of this panel discussion. And I know I'm a little bit of an outsider, perhaps, but I really I hope that something was connected with the, the story of DNA. And thank you again. The same thanks to all of you and also to Niraja, who invited me to participate to this session. With that, we shall finish episode four of the DNA Papers. Thank you, Matthew, Michelle, and Lloyd, for such an interesting discussion about Griffith and the implications of his work for the history of DNA. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll tune back in next month for the next episode.